Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one. And I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at Charlie U, you spelled the normal way, Charlie U A I. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast. So I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie UAI. I hope to see you there. I am extremely excited to be talking with today's guest. He's a PhD student at ETH Zurich, researching deep learning, structured learning, and optimization for large and high dimensional data. But he's best known for his YouTube channel, which now has over 50,000 people who subscribe to watch him explain the newest machine learning papers. Please welcome Yannick Kilcher. Yannick, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's really great to have you on because me and my colleagues, I work uh, as a machine learning engineer and it just, your YouTube channel really is amazing. It just saves so much time to be able to have a, someone who's really in the field, a researcher, to explain all these new papers, filter out which ones are most important. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'm very surprised that it finds such an audience worldwide. I thought maybe every now and then someone would listen to something, but for people to actually subscribe and some even ask for more, <laughs> which is, it's a bit incredible. But I think the the field is on a, maybe a bit of a hype track right now, but certainly growing and interesting to people. And the, the channel is mostly for myself to force me to read papers because 
when I can explain them, then I feel I've understood them at least to the degree such that I can fumble my way through an explanation. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I thought I'd just, I just do that. And then various people do it. I think various people have their own methods where they explain it to their lab or whatnot. But I thought there's a lot of people in the world that maybe don't have time or don't have money or don't live in the right place or just like yourself work as something else don't or not in this research field that would maybe benefit from just having someone ramble about papers. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So we'll get to more about the YouTube channel later on. But to start with, I always like to understand how the guests got started in, in this field. So how were you first exposed to computer science? And why did you decide that it was what you wanted to do as a career? I mostly, I think laziness a bit. It, so I started actually studying medicine, went to med school, but switched after uh, a year because it just wasn't the, the job of a doctor, I think just didn't strike me as something that I wanted to do long term. So I switched to computer science, not really knowing, like it was more or less a random pick. And then I think at the end of bachelor's, I had some pattern recognition classes, which I thought to be pretty cool. And then in the master's, when I came here to ETH, I, there was no track yet for machine learning. This exists now, but it was still a very small field. It was obviously doing something, but not as big as it is now. But I just happened to enroll in kind of the computer vision and uh, statistical learning classes and so on. So it was more or less a bit of an accident coupled with just interest. And then, yeah, I didn't really know what to do. So I inquired about doing PhD and that I got accepted. And then I heard about this deep learning stuff and that seemed pretty cool. And mostly no one was doing it here. Like very few people even at the school were even doing deep learning and, and at the research group where I'm, no one was. And it was a hidden topic at the beginning when I, so I started at the end of 2015. So AlexNet would have already made be, be there and so on, but it wasn't yet penetrating computer science as it is today. And so most professors were still against it. They were like, no, I can't prove anything about deep learning. I won't do, my students won't do deep learning. Um, but yeah, so, so we kind of got started in this and yeah. And looking through your Google Scholar, it seems like you said you got started at the end of 2015 and it seems like you've gone from, you've navigated so many different subfields in the papers that you've been a part of. It started with audio recognition for birds and then you did some optimization things and then CNN's generative models. And now it seems that uh, more recently it was adversarial attacks and training. So I'm curious as to what the, what the journey was through all those different subfields and if there's an underlying thread that kind of ties everything together. There is none. There, <laughs> it's, it's simply, it's in, I'm more or less of a random walk. I, w- I want to say that there's a grand plan, but there isn't. It's simply, I'm not, I'm not like an, a very focused academic, so I probably won't have an academic career or anything. So the bird thing is funny because that was just, that was a master student that I supervised. 
So it's not my, pro I gave my inputs, but I supervised the student and went on to be a very successful project. And uh, of course, very cool for him. He went on, founded, uh, I think now multiple startups in the kind of audio processing domain. Yeah. So very, very cool, but it didn't have much to do with me. <laughs> So to say, so yeah, I started off in optimization because that was just what I did in my master's thesis and then wandered around to just look at different things. And now I have to write a PhD thesis and I'm thinking myself, how do I tie this stuff together? But yeah, there's no underlying reason. And for that PhD thesis is, do you have an idea of what how you're going to start to construct that or i guess no. what are you working on no <laughs> it's still a mystery it's a mystery to me it's going to it's going to work out somehow but as i said i'm not the i'm not the kind of most successful academic in the sense of playing the academic game i think a lot of people are very good at that and they they that's what they do they focus their topic on some kind of subfields they know what are the important research question how can i make a paper and build papers on top of one another and so on so anyone who's into academic careers must be must grap grapple with this task of it's not only research it's like strategic inquiry into the questions you even look at and i i did, I did not do that i just more or less looked at what interested me and yeah it's going to go over somehow but that's yeah, what I'm it sure is. it'll work out. And so I guess, what are you working on now, if you're able to discuss that in your research? Yeah, sure. We're, we are, we're continuing to look at adversarial, adversarial attacks and defenses where there is, we've looked a bit into what do adversarial examples do in networks. Of course, a lot of people are researching this and we've looked at drawing more theoretical connections between adversarial training and what's called spectral norm regularization, where you basically look at the network as an operator and you, regu you regularize its spectral norm. And yeah, just we, we're, we're trying to find a bunch of research questions in that space to answer. Interesting. And is there a Maybe I hate to use the word like grand unified theory, huh? or is there some like end state of where you want this research to turn out to be in terms of how adversarial training would happen in the future? No, like we're trying to contribute our part, I would say. So I, as I said, I don't have a, I don't have a grand vision for what I expect in terms of my research to turn out, simply trying to find a bunch of questions, answer them, and that will be the little dent that we have made in human knowledge. And for me, that's good enough because I don't plan on becoming an academic. And so if you're, if you don't have that plan to be an academic, what do you, do you imagine that you'll go into industry? And if so, what do you think is the like most exciting things that, that you're interested in that? I have no idea. Like I, th this is, I don't know. Some people are very, they have a very fo good focus. They have a very good plan. I don't like <laughs> at, at any point in my life. Also, like how I got into machine learning and so on. It was just more or less a, a random trajectory. And I'm counting on randomness to take me somewhere interesting in like industry, certainly an option startups. I'm looking into that maybe full-time YouTube. 
I, I don't know. <laughs> Luck has certainly been in your favor in terms of the YouTube channel. Now 50,000 subscribers. Did you ever imagine that, that it would have been that popular? Yeah, no way. Yeah, certainly I consider this a lot of luck, a lot of blessing that even let's assume for a second that this is deterministic, right? Actually, that many people are interested and so on. It still had to happen that what I happen to do matches that interest, right? So this alone is luck. And then on top of that, there is luck of being shouted out by every now and then shouted out by someone famous, which instantly trans like gives a bit of momentum so in that way i've been insanely lucky yeah i would have never imagined this amounting to anything i thought i'd put a bunch of videos out there and maybe some lonely university student who has to give a talk about a paper will find it useful but yeah of course it's not just luck you do have a way of explaining these papers and drawing it out in a way that is it, it just makes it, uh, drawing from your experience of reading all of these in the past and your own research, it really does make it super easy for someone who's understanding or who doesn't have that full understanding to be able to get up to speed on why this paper is important, what the outcome of this is, and how it got there, especially the, the parts where you connect the math into specifically like drawing out what parts are doing what and like drawing the arrows between them. I think that's incredibly useful. Yeah, that's the goal. If you are saying this and this is good feedback, then that is the goal. It is how a paper comes together when you read it. And then when you explain it to someone else, it almost forces you to do these things, to say, look, here in the math is where they do this part in the diagram and, and, and stuff like this. Yeah, thanks for the feedback. And it's also extremely impressive. I know that you're nickname, at least on the podcast and some places on the internet, is Lightspeed. And this is probably due to the fact that within just days of a preprint coming out, you're able to have a full explanation video on that. So I think the question everyone wants to know is, how are you able to do that? I don't, I don't know why. First of all, I have been downscaling my speed and frequency of videos just because of real life ramping up as i said i have to write this thesis i expect that once i have that under control i can ramp it up again during it's it really started during let's say the covid first wave when everything the world halted for a while and so i had a lot of freedom free time at that point to just make videos so i made one every day and i did that for i think 3 months or so and but in total like when people read a paper then i don't think like it takes you what it takes you one two hours to read it if you read it well and maybe you want to read it again so that's three four hours and then that's <laughs> i don't know that fits in a day if you read it try to understand it that fits in a day and then it's coming up with an explanation yeah, I maybe, but I, I barely know anyone that sits down for a week and thinks, how am I going to explain this? It, so it, the, the kind of people have said this, yeah, like, how do you do this so fast? But I don't think it's particularly special because you need the time that you need to read a paper. You need maybe an hour or two to then come up with an explanation or how do you say it? You need an hour to record. And then I don't do any editing 
which saves me a lot of time. And then I just need another hour to make the thumbnail and annotate the timestamps and so on. So that fits, it fits in a day. Of course, if you have a job beside that, it doesn't. But <laughs> assuming you can dedicate some time, it fits within a day. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. I find that, yeah, someone working, especially I'll have, like you said, the first read generally only takes an hour or two, but then normally to actually understand it. And if I had to explain it, especially, I would definitely want to take a few days to read a little bit of it each day so I can like have that assimilate during my downtime, so to speak. But, and of course you do bring the, like I said before, the extensive research experience. So you are able to like have the paper crux of it, so, so to speak click much faster than someone who's perhaps not uh, so much in that all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe it is because I'm in this world. I think for anyone else, if you were to come across something like this in your world, then you would be able to kind of easily fit that into a place in your kind of mind map of the field. And maybe that would speed things up a lot. Yeah, that's maybe that contributes in large part. Also, I, I don't really care about quality. So I, a lot of people are so worried about quality. I feel I've, if it's not the best video, I, I won't do many retakes. Like I'll retake, I'll do a retake if I screw up the beginning, if I screw up a name or if I like screw up the kind of intro. But other than that, I don't do retakes and it, I don't think it suffers that much and people worry too much about quality. Yeah, it's, uh, that's something that I'm definitely struggling with as well, but still definitely trying to find the right balance of efficiency and having a really good output. Is, and to switch to a slightly something different about the YouTube channel, were there videos that you made that you think were maybe underappreciated or more overlooked? Because obviously some videos go on to become massive, like uh, the GPT-3 video or the, the attention you all you need video. But what were like the, I guess on both sides, surprises of videos that got popular and ones that you thought might take off but didn't so there i don't think there are videos that didn't perform actually there is this there's this paper by francois cholet that's on the measure of intelligence and i thought that would be very interesting to people because he tries to define intelligence in the measurable not really measurable but information theoretic formal way and I thought that would be interesting to people, but I think I've also let myself be clickbaited into that, thinking it's, it's Francois Cholet. It's like single author paper of the person who made Keras working now at Google. It's called On the Measure of Intelligence, which is like, it's, it's 40 pages long. It includes this arc challenge and so on. I think I have overestimated how interesting that is. And, and I think people just didn't find it that interesting. So the stats show that these... I've made four videos on that because it was just such a long paper and uh, it, it underperformed, which I can totally understand now. But I think it, it was just, to me, it seemed like something interesting at the time. But also, I think a lot of people are just more informed than I am in this kind of almost philosophical space of what is intelligence and so on. I, I think my expertise is lagging behind. And probably a lot of people already thought, well, this Cholet person, whatever they say about intelligence, I'm not so sure about this. So yeah, that overperformed, overperformed. The funniest thing, whenever I put the word 
lottery ticket in the title <laughs> the the views just go up like crazy like I, the first time this happened i was like what is going on like, this is crazy i just whatever the lottery ticket hypothesis or bert plays the lottery all these papers and just the views taking off but the watch time the watch time goes down to like average watch time goes down to i don't know a few seconds and then you look at the demographics of your statistics and it's like usa female 50 to 60 year old and not like it's cool if these people want to watch my videos but it's just a discrepancy with my usual audience and at some point it dawned on me that it is because of this of this of the title of the lottery and i think people for some reason people search for these types of things and then wonder how to win the lottery and then they click on the video and then of course they're disappointed after 10 seconds if, once they realize this is not for them and then they go away so ultimately i think it hurts these views hurt the channel because they just so it gives youtube a signal that i'm making clickbait content which inadvertently i do <laughs> i like so that's why whenever i put lottery in the title right now like the first 10 seconds are this is not how to win the lottery go away if you want to know this yeah, but there's no way to solve it. So these videos certainly overperformed for that unexpected reason, which is a bit funny. Yeah, but that is funny that the specific term of people wanting to win the lottery somehow is super. But just tends to recommend your video on YouTube. That's fascinating. Yeah. So you've said that now you're more. You're not making a video every single day. It's probably more on the cadence of a well, like once a week, about. Yeah, I try once, twice a week, things like this. And then I have some longer term videos that I'm trying to make, which are also edited and stuff like this, but they progress more slowly. Mm -hmm. So you have to be a little bit more selective on what the papers that you're trying to showcase are. What is your, what's your process on how you're filtering out which papers to include on the channel? Yeah. Uh, there's no process like it's it's just whatever i come across and i think is interesting so my the rule is the rule for me is when i read a paper i make a video about it so whenever i come across a paper that i want to read i have to make a video about it, it, it this can be like a popular paper or, or this can be some obscure paper that i found and wanted to read and that's the process there's no I don't know, big thing. I don't look at impact. I don't look at... Of course, I'm going to see, as anyone else, see the kind of big name papers more. But so I'm equivalently exposed to that more than any other person is. But the process is really just what comes across my screen and I read, then I make a video about it. I think that your... The way you had a really great video on how you do read papers, and it's it's not just starting at the top and reading all the way until the bottom. Can you explain a little bit about your process for for reading papers that you find most effective to understand it? Yeah, it's a look at the pictures. Um, <laughs> it's no, so usually I, I I see something and then you look at title, read the abstract, and and then once it seems interesting, I think. Most people have started to put most of the relevant information right in the introduction, just because that's how you get past reviewers. Because at the beginning, they're still interesting, sorry, interested. 
So you front load all your kind of contributions. You don't want to leave something that is important or great on page six. You want you know, put that stuff on page one to pre-bias the reviewer. So I, I, I feel if you read the introduction well, and then often pictures are like it's a meme look at the pictures, but it is actually a good way because they pictures require some investment from the people who make them. They also, they take up a lot of space, which is very valuable in our world where we exclusively deal in eight page PDFs. So a picture has a lot of, has a lot of thought in it, usually in a paper and conveys the central, often conveys the central either result or the central idea, if it's a new idea and so on. So once I read abstract and introduction, I usually go look at kind of the pictures, try to understand from there. And I have found that I constantly keep hypotheses in my mind what the paper is about. Because you never know unless you've read it, unless you fully read it. But I constantly keep kind of hypotheses. Okay, here's what I think the paper is about. Here's what I think they're going to do. Here is what I think, what kind of experiments they could do and so on. And also, here is what I expect from them such that I am convinced of their claims. Right? A lot of papers make claims that they, we have a new model and the new model has a new module. And that module makes everything better. And of course, at the end, they're going to have the best numbers at the, in the experiments. But what you want to see is something that clearly convinces you that their claims make that number go up and not just them throwing more computers at the problem and so on. So that's, I feel that's a... That's the main thing that you keep running hypotheses and running questions in your head as you read the paper. And then the other thing I found to be very helpful is to read every sentence and read it because I found when I'm distracted or so, I just start, I start skimming, right? I start like, oh, la, 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 and then I don't understand something, but then I'm like, yeah, okay, I don't understand this part, but let's go on and so on. I found that it's much better when you read every sentence and you read every sentence until you understand it. And when you don't understand a sentence, really mark it. I don't understand this sentence. And then you read on and you don't build up this kind of depth of not having understood the last few parts. So yeah, this just this skimming, I would advise against that. And yeah, exactly. One of the things that you had said in that video was like you just went into, and probably the biggest takeaway that I had from that was how critically you're reading about this. You're thinking like a reviewer. It's what, yeah, exactly. What are the claims of the authors and did they actually prove it based on the experiments that they ran? Uh, and it's actually quite interesting. After I started doing that, you actually realize that not a lot of papers can make the, can really make like such a strong claims as they tend to do, at least in the front. Like you said, they have to play the academic game and know how to get past that peer review by front-loading things that are interesting in the very front. And you've talked a lot about the academic game and things that are perhaps not the best aligned incentives in terms of 
where the field should be going versus the actual things that researchers are doing. And this was particularly highlighted in the video for the visual transformer where it was you played made some fun of it was obviously a paper from google and could you tell by the citations and like the same colors of the figures for people who are not in academia can you explain the peer review process and why it's why you think that it's broken yeah first i have to say a disclaimer that i am not a very successful academic so i'm not i'm not a particularly unsuccessful academic but i am not a i'm not good like that i wouldn't say the academic game is one of the things where i'm just very good at and so take all of this from someone who's not who's not good at it who's not good at that process i feel this kind of criticism would come would be more effective from someone who is very successful in the academic game. And some people like, let's say, Joshua Benjo are speaking out about the problems in the field, but so am I. But just take it with, with this grain of salt that's necessary from someone who ha is in the process and, and has problems with the process. So, yeah. So the peer review process in many fields is, it's always complained about. What's particularly special about machine learning is that we publish in conference proceedings. And so what, what that means is that there are conferences and there are just a few what are called A-level a or top-level conferences. For general machine learning, these are ICML, NeurIPS, there's iClear, and then you have some kind of more specialized ones like computer vision conferences or... NLP conferences and so on. But there are just a handful of these conferences each year. And what you do is you send your paper to these conferences for double blind review. And so you upload this somewhere. There's a deadline. There's always big fuzz about deadlines. Okay, so you submit that in eight page PDF. And then three, usually three, but can be more, can be less, random reviewers are assigned to your paper. They don't see your name, you don't see their name, so that's the double blind nature. And they write a review. They're tasked with writing a review of the paper and give a score. And the score, basically, there is a threshold, I think the score goes from something like one to nine and a six is considered a weak accept or so. Maybe I'm confused. And a five is considered a weak reject. It, it might differ, but so they, they have to give a score of how much this paper contributes to the knowledge of mankind, essentially, and how much this paper should end up in the conference proceedings. And then after that happens, you get a chance to respond to these reviews. So you get these three reviews and you have a chance to respond once. And you have usually about 5,000 characters to do that to respond to the three reviewers you or like a one the, the rules change a bit from time to time but you have can respond once and then the reviewers can look at your response and if they choose can change their score and at the end a what's called a meta reviewer which who is some usually someone more senior in the field will look at all the reviews and your response and maybe what they've changed and then make a final decision whether or not your paper will be in the 
proceedings of that conference. And right now, I believe the acceptance rate for papers maybe hovers around 15 to 20%. So it's, it's not like the, the journal nature or something where it's two to 3%, but it's fairly, it's, it is fairly competitive. Yeah. So once your paper is what's called accepted, you're all happy and uh, your paper is now peer reviewed and you can put that on your Google scholar or whatnot. That's you have a peer reviewed paper and you go on do the next thing. So that's how the, the kind of process works. So the, the reason actually why I think machine learning publishes in conferences and not in, in journals usually is because the field is so fast. Journal publications usually require a lot more time because there's a back and forth between the reviewers, multiple rounds and so on. And that's just too slow for machine learning because machine learning moves so fast right now that when I go to a conference, the proceedings there are six months old and that's already old. So I walk through the conference and it's, that's old, this is old, this is old. And yeah, so that it's pretty crazy field, but that's how it works generally. And so what are the alternative ways? So obviously we don't want to just have a deluge of papers and no peer review at all, but what would you imagine a better solution might look like? Yeah. Okay. I guess first we have to talk about the problems with, with the process because uh, so far what I've described sounds pretty okay. So people look at your paper, they're usually other researchers and they peer review your paper and check it and so on. The, the problem is this does not happen right now because, well, other fields already complain about peer review. So generally in science, you have this meme about reviewer number two and how they're terrible and so on. So there is all of these problems. Plus on top of this is this kind of the fact that machine learning right now is so hyped. So the field is growing and that means we are seriously understaffed with reviewers. So there are stories of master students being reviewers who basically have no idea of the field. Not that there aren't competent master students, but more or less random master students. Not like stellar, like just they they just grab reviewers wherever they can. It seems, and and it's not that they aren't bad researchers or anything. I'm sure there uh, a lot of people are very competent. It's that no one has time, and there are absolutely no incentives to do a good job, and there are actually counter incentives. So whenever you reject a paper, because you're like, nah, not enough experiments, I'm not really convinced and so on, you reject, they're simply going to submit that to the next conference. Not to you, no real harm done. If you accept the paper that has some kind of flaw in it, and then of course you're anonymous, it's still a bit on you. The, the area chair knows who you are and so on. On the other hand, it seems to be totally fine right now that people write a few sentences as a review. They, they're like, yeah, seems fine, but experiments aren't enough. Yeah, weak reject. So there's all kinds of incentive to not put a lot of work into it, to be vague, to reject papers and so on. And that leads to a situation where being accepted for a lot of papers is more or less a coin flip. So we we know that the papers who are re that papers that are really good 
they get accepted with a fairly high likelihood. And papers who, sorry, that are really bad, they get rejected with a fairly high likelihood, but there is the bulk of papers is in between. And those are, it's, it's just all coin flips all the way. And the problem is you don't get that many coin flips a year. You only get a few coin flips a year. And that frustrates a lot of people because the reviews you get back aren't qualitatively good. You, you can't, like they're vague. A lot of them are vague. You can't really improve from them. And then once you submit to the next conference, you get a different set of reviewers. So whenever the last reviewer said, I would like to see experiments on this and this data set, the new reviewer doesn't care about that. They have a problem with your methodology. And the next reviewer has a problem whether or not what you're asking is even a problem and so on. That's generally very frustrating to people. And then there is the last or one of the last effects is that once you are accepted, you're done. So once your paper is through, which is a hugely noisy process, you're good. You never have to update that thing again. Even if it contains, maybe if it contains super serious mistake, you upload a new version on, on archive and so on, but it's peer reviewed. It's, so it, it's good. It must be correct. And you're all fine. You get, you have no incentive to improve it. You have incentive to write a new paper, but you have no incentive to improve your paper. So that was, that's all leads to a world where people are, I'm not want to say game the system, but they certainly like the people, especially who or of course are interested in academic careers have to almost play that game where let's just try to write lots of papers uh well because each it's a noisy process and then we get through and then we don't update them again because there's no benefit to that and so on so how yeah what does an alternative look like it's hard to say but my idea was always that i don't mind if a paper is not peer-reviewed especially when the peer review is meaningless as it is, right? It's the, the reviewers, they are not such experts in the field. Like I, I can assess the paper in my field just as well as a reviewer can. Our field does no reproductions in peer review. So when I get a paper to peer review, I don't sit down and try to from scratch do what they do. I, I might look at the code. I might verify some some experiments but i i am not going so i trust myself as much as i trust any reviewer to assess whether or not a paper is good i know that i can't really trust any experiments in a paper anyway so i don't care whether or not a paper has been peer-reviewed and i think a lot of people don't care because what we do is we read papers on archive which are not peer-reviewed and we'd rather have a paper as soon as it is out than, yeah, but it's not peer-reviewed. We can't, like the signal of peer review as a marker of quality is so low that I don't mind it not happening. So the question is now, how do you assess, how do you make a scientific system such that, let's say, the more qualitative work turns out to be more highly recognized and so on? And I believe that is already happening just in a, 
maybe in a more free market way than people would like. But in my mind, if you simply let people vote with their, let's say they're sharing the paper, them citing papers and so on, that's a much stronger signal for a paper's qualitative contribution to the field than three people who may have five minutes of their time. So what I would, what I would improve on the current system is maybe we can find a way where we don't write paper in PDFs and then done and then next paper and so on, but maybe more a continuous updating of research. So you have maybe a research topic, you write about it, and then you figure out something new and then oh, you make a new chapter here or you make a new thing here. And then someone else figures something out and they maybe link that. More like a, a wiki style thing. What I really think is needed is comments. So the ability for people to comment on papers. Because when you go to an archive page of a paper, all is that paper, right? What if below there was a comment section where it's like in your face, like here's what people say. And maybe like Reddit, you can vote on comments and then the author can respond and someone is, this is not really good. But then the author says, oh no, you've overlooked this. And then people can make their own assessment. I, I believe in the competency of people to go and read conflicting opinions and figuring out for themselves. Yes, that sounds reasonable. No, that doesn't sound reasonable. And I don't, I don't believe so much in a system that goes against incentives, which is what the current peer review system does. So yeah, I, I think your original question was, how do we improve it? I believe simply not caring about peer review is a big part of it. And that needs professors to hand out PhDs, maybe without people having peer reviewed papers. And also maybe we build some kind of, and there are systems already to comment on papers. That would be great starts already. Yeah. And that's a really great answer. And there, uh, exactly. I've been looking for a tool that, that has those comments. And obviously there's Reddit and like conversations on Twitter, but they're not centralized in any way or not linked to, uh, you kind of have to like, just keep checking for new things. And if there's comments, but, and then there's a tool hypothesis, which is ha which has like highlighting on any web page or PDF and it's collaborative as well. But on the majority of ML papers on archive, no one actually uses that. It's usually just like <laughs> me highlighting things occasionally and a few other pe random people. Yeah, this, this, it's, the same, it's the same problem if you want to start a new social network or whatnot. If no one else does it, then what's the point? So I see that problem. It, I, I believe if Archive themselves built in this functionality, I believe this would at least be somewhat fruitful. Yeah, I wonder if anyone's gone to the Archive people and directly asked them to add this functionality. It doesn't seem like it would be that hard. I don't know. You may be misunder misunderestimating. Mis no, you may be underestimating what 4chan can do with an open commenting system. <laughs> okay, um, that's that is true. Yeah, <laughs> maybe the archive people wisely simply don't want that kind of traffic or that kind of work at their hands. Yeah, that's true. Know. And though they have added recently the papers with code yes. uh, add-on, which yeah. is which has been quite good in terms of 
encouraging reproducibility and mm-hmm. and open code, something that was certainly a problem a little bit before. And there's been a, and to go back to the original point of, uh, of people not really caring about peer review, it's funny because I've done, this is maybe like the, the 12th episode or 13 or 14, something like that. But it's, I always ask everyone how they find new papers to read, how they, how their internal filters work. And zero people have said that it's from conferences. Everyone says Twitter, Reddit. So it, you're definitely right that it is, it is starting to, people are definitely not paying as much attention to the conferences as perhaps the conference people would like them to be. They're not as prestigious as they once were, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. I've, I feel conference proceedings, it's not, even, it's not even good now because the field is so large, even 15% of what 7,000 papers is a lot of paper and they all drop at once. So NeurIPS, NeurIPS just be like, here's a giant list of papers. What are you going to, what are you going to do with that? It's mad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even organized by topic in such a big conference. <laughs> NIPS is, <laughs> they just give you all these papers and then people have to, there's like external tools, but none of them are very good. There's like people who try to do topic modeling on the papers themselves, but you you think that it wouldn't be that hard for a conference just like, oh, hey, here are all the graph papers. Here are the, but anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very hard to parse through. And then something else that you talked about has been like an obsession with people's obsession with state of the art about how papers that get state of the art, even if it's just incrementally better, but was achieved with 10 times the compute, let's say those papers just get all of the attention, like at a broad level. Do you think that the entire field is like overfitting to this specific metric, this like a specific data set? Yes. And I, I believe, I think that most people feel that way, that the this kind of insistence on state of the art. First of all, this is a good tool to get past peer review because the reviewer, once you have state of the art, right, the reviewer has a hard time dismissing your paper because you're, you're, they're like it's not that interesting but you're like but i'm better than anyone else in the world on this particular thing so you must accept my pay it's almost a an almost surefire way to get accepted if you beat a state-of-the-art number and and then yeah i do think the focus is too much but on the other hand you have to say at least it's something right and I've had this conversation with many people and there is a credible argument or like an interesting argument to be made at, look, you can try to compare ideas, but that's subjective. And then you can try to maybe say, I have a new method, but maybe you resource constrain all the methods to some fixed set of CPU cycles or something, but then it becomes an, a coding exercise like how much can you optimize and this method may need more memory but and so on so the the kind of purest metric you actually have is you go ahead and you try whatever like whatever it takes okay if you spend a billion dollars fine if you use a year of compute fine whatever it takes to optimize this one number and that's it is a rather pure measure you have to say, even if the you can discuss about insisting on that number and how much importance you, as you assign to the number of how good you are at this particular benchmark, but at least 
it is a rather honest signal, right? With all its problems, it, it is a rather honest signal, even if you just, like most people, they just achieve it by random seed. But even that, right? Everyone can try multiple random seeds. Yeah, there is, there is for and against. It's certainly not good. But then again, there is something to be said about benchmarks. They do serve a purpose. Yeah, and it, it also came up in the context of, you're, of course, one of the co-hosts of the ML Street Talk podcast, which, by the way, is extremely good. It's one of the, it's so dense. One of the only podcasts I have to listen to at normal speed with a notebook in front of me just to get all the details. And especially one of the recent ones with Walid Sabah, mm-hmm. where he was talking about how research outs in AI outside of deep learning just has no funding at all. And of course, that is because of, partially because of soda chasing, partially because of just deep learning works really well. So I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are after hearing what he had to say on all the potential of non-deep learning AI about, about I guess, in general, the state of AI research and if deep learning is the way to continue going. Yeah, I, I don't know. That particular episode was actually also very intense to be part of because, yeah, he certainly had a lot to say and, and a lot of, yeah, non, also non-mainstream maybe opinions and he, he could make uh, his point extremely well, I thought. So I'm definitely excited where he goes in the future. He says he's working on some kind of system where he, so I don't know, for people who didn't listen to that, he's an NLP researcher and what he tries to do is he tries to just maybe in the fashion of an expert system give some sort of a structure to the machine that he as an expert builds but he claims that he can do it in such a way that it's not like these brittle expert systems in in the past and i believe yeah the funding question the the question of where do we allocate resources in the field. You're right. Deep learning is the thing right now. It's completely hyped and so on. But maybe that will pass. Maybe it's a hype and the future will look different for other systems. I believe... So when I started, uh, <laughs> the big thing was was GANs, right? This is was... I started end of 2015. I was at NURIPS 2016, then NIPS 2016, and... Everything was GANs, everything. Like you could just walk past any session room. It was like GANs, 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 no, nonstop GANs. Absolutely crazy. And GANs are still around, but it's okay. We've seen lots of GANs. Now let's do transformers. And sure, all of those are deep learning, but so I think deep learning isn't something that's going to go away, but maybe these kind of old school systems come back and are going to be combined because what Walid Saba wants to do ultimately, he says to get a representation from the data, deep learning is really good, but then to impose more structure, you need something else. And that seems a reasonable approach. Let's take what we know is good from deep learning and then let's combine that with structure with other stuff. So that it seems like a reasonable argument. On the other hand, there is GPT-3. And (laughs) every indication tells us that if we just throw more deep learning at the problem, we're going to get better. So yeah, I don't know how to resolve that. It's, It's going to be interesting either way.
yeah, like you said, now it's all Transformers. Attention is all you need. And of course, it is impressive that is attention all you need. The paper came out in 2017, and it was perhaps the most predictive paper title that we've seen in deep learning so far. And we've seen all sorts of amazing results. Like you said, GPT-3 seems to be able to do not like full reasoning or logic, but it's a really good mo language model. And we've also seen results like uh, your most recent video where you can actually get knowledge graphs from these transformer language models that seem to be fairly good, which is very impressive in and of itself. Also, second to last video with performers where now you have essentially linear scaling for the attention mechanisms. And from that, we're going to see all sorts of even crazier models because now obviously where the bottleneck was in that memory and if it's linear, you can do all sorts of crazy things. Do you think that we are, we have an over insistence on transformers are the way to go? It seems like everyone I ask, I talk to, it says, yeah, obviously transformers are like are great and everything. And I can't seem to find anyone that has a counter opinion uh, to this. So I don't know if you have that or if you also just think that transformers are just going to be the future. It's not so much transformers are the future, but maybe one of the futures is scale. And I think transformers have shown us that scale in itself can be something that that where all of a sudden, if you have enough scale, these things arise, these qualities of models arise that you would not have had or have observed at smaller scales. So I think what I, I long thought of transformers or the attention mechanisms, like I thought of convolutions or, or things like this, where I thought, ah, this is this, this, you, in deep learning, you tend to learn about the perce perceptron and you learn about fully connected layers. And then you say, but here's the convolution. And the convolution is especially good at, at images because it does this special thing inside of it. And I long thought about transformers, like I thought about convolutions, that ah, transformers, they have this attention mechanism and it's specifically good for something. But so I thought there is the MLP is the general thing. And then the convolution is one thing I can specialize in and the transformer is another thing but i've maybe i'm misinterpreting this but as i see it now it's here is the mlp here is the convolution and here is the transformer so the transformer is simply it's a more general deep learning layer than a multi-layer perceptron so it, as of now i believe it is maybe the most general layer in a neural network that we can have so it makes sense that is the thing that is going to turn out best if you feed it enough data. And a lot of people, I think the, the opinion is uncontroversial that if we don't have enough data, maybe you don't want to use a transformer. Maybe you want to use something that has inductive biases, kind of constraints, regularizations, and so on. But transformers are the most general thing. And that's why I say if you want to scale, if you have the data, if you have the compute, then I would chime right in and say transformers are the way to go. Maybe we find something more general, but as of now, it looks like, yeah, it's still a good model. Yeah, extremely interesting. And 
It was actually along that same line. It was a shock to me that GPT, I guess I didn't read the paper closely, but GTP3, GPT3 is actually underfitted because of the just the sheer scale of the data set that they use. So <laughs> I can't even imagine what we're going to start to see in the future. It will be extremely interesting, especially like you said, with all the pre-training techniques that we can even use on images, going back to referencing the visual transformer paper and your video on that. And maybe we're seeing the emergence of graph attention networks as well. It's certainly an exciting time to be in machine learning research. Although like you, you referenced a little bit before it, perhaps the field is a little bit too overhyped. So what do you, do you think that is the case? And yeah, can you just talk about the hype surrounding deep learning and the AI field in general right now? Yeah. So the, I feel that this is just a very subjective opinion. I feel that the field is making amazing progress, but the question is, do all the people that pour into the field have something to contribute? So certainly if you are the high profile institutions, Google research or whatnot, one of the high profile universities, and you're an academic in that, you do have a place in research and in these big companies, you do have a place in building products. However, I don't know if most people that pour into the field now because of sheer excitement about it will find a, a place like they imagine. A lot of smaller companies where you might go and work after your studies or they aren't necessarily using the latest and greatest transformer. They might use something pre-trained, they might apply something, but most people that everyone wants to be a data scientist now. If you're a data scientist, cool. But then most of the task is like cleaning data, which, you know, real world is messy. You have to clean the data. But so I think the hype is justified from the standpoint of how much progress the field makes. It's amazing. We can do things with machines that were unthought of. But I'm worried about all the people that are drawn to this. And I, I don't know, I can't promise that everyone will find, will find like a job in the field where that knowledge gets to be fruitful. Yeah, that's one, one thing. The other kind of worrisome thing about the field is this centralization around the big hubs. And naturally, if we want to scale up and so on, uh, people who have money are going to be in the advantage and... Right now, we have even one company just having big giant load of TPUs that they happily rent out to you, but they still have it. And the more scale we go and the more intensive resources we go, the more this is going to be just centralized. And there are efforts to decentralize it. And it's special already. If you think about biotech, for example, like it's not, it's, I never have the expectation that I can sit down in my basement and do some biotech research myself. And let me just splice this gene here and whatnot. Let me make these fluorescent frogs. And you never have that expectation. And it, it appears that maybe the machine learning field is going a little bit into the direction of more of the rest of science where you actually need some resources and it's no longer enough to have your laptop. Yeah, it is quite unfortunate, especially like we said before, where GPT-3 cost, I think the estimate was definitely north of $10 million to train. And 
pretty much, yeah, the, there's only a few places that are willing even to entertain the conversation of being able to do something like that. So the centralization thing is concerning, especially also considering the centralization, centralization of talent that occurs because of that. I was seeing a stat that two years ago in 2018, 80% of the machine learning PhDs were went to Google or Facebook or like another tech company, 80%, some crazy number. And of course, it's more widespread now, but still, yeah, I don't, it's hard to figure out how we, where we go from here in terms of everyone having more access to, to be able to do those at the state of the art research. Yeah. And, and one has to say, Google, Google for now gives out free collab access with GPU or even TPU access. So there's definitely an aspect where when these companies succeed, we all succeed in a way so that they definitely, I don't want to crap too much on the big companies. They're doing cool things that universities just can't do. So there's a, a good aspect, but also, as you say, the centralization of talent and of just these methods it can be worrisome at times. So now to switch over to, of course, you're a very well-known guy. So I've, and at my company specifically, and all the ML engineers I know, we, like I said before, it's pretty much everyone watches your videos. And so I've solicited questions from my colleagues to, to ask you. The first one is for someone interested in applying ML to real world problems, how much math should they know? I don't know, zero. I think what you need, what you need more, if, if you need any math, you just need kind of base to understand the metrics that you're evaluating on. Uh, I feel, especially in recent years, these frameworks and all, they've gotten so good at things that you can apply them out of the box in the real world. It's mostly train a model, fiddle out with the hyperparameters. You don't need to know what they do. It's it's not like we know. It's, I can explain to you how what non batch norm works or so, but it's not like I know what it's doing in any particular network. That's just as much a mystery to me as to anyone. So, if you want to apply machine learning, I feel now is the the best time to do so without much of math knowledge. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Definitely the stats part. Just know your basic stats down, and that's definitely the most important. I totally agree. Next is, what does the future of modeling look like with the emergence of new technologies, drag and drop, auto ML, things like that? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting, interesting field. And I have to say, I have very little knowledge of things like auto ML and, and so on. But it definitely feels like when I train models that I'm doing very repetitive things. Like, okay, I'm training a model, then I'm fiddling around with the learning rate until I get something sensible. And then it's, it's this decision tree. And then you see, oh, this happens. So I probably need to adjust my weight decay or this happens and so on. And I, I feel there are a lot of companies that try to automate it. Uh, definitely goes into a, a good, I feel a good direction. I don't think it's too worrisome if people can just throw in their data and they get a model out of it, what they do with it, their problem. But yeah, I definitely, I, you shouldn't expect it to take off like crazy, but I think for a regular company to just throw in their data and get a model out of it, why not? 
Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Like you say, it's obviously obviously like modeling talent is never going to be fully commoditized per se. But yeah, if if it enables some smaller company with not as many resources can't pay like super high rates that are going for ML PhDs that are doing that kind of repetitive work, then yeah, it seems like a seems like a great thing overall. Yeah, let's let's not kid ourselves. We when we have a computer vision problem, we go to whatever PyTorch library. We take like ResNet fifty. And it's it's not like we're geniuses at modeling. It, it's not we know there's this God, there was this article there was in a very fairly high profile I, I I don't remember exactly where it was, but it said it was a few years back, maybe twenty eighteen or so, twenty seventeen. It said like only a few hundred people in the world are able to train these models. And I'm like, wow, I'm, you know, <laughs> gee. Yeah, I definitely welcome the kind of more uh, just accessibility to ML of people. And I don't worry too much that they don't understand a lot of it. Yeah, it, and it seems like if you play it out in your head of, okay, then what are the skills other than modeling that you're going to want to have? It's more, okay, there's two sides of it, obviously, in the pipeline. There's the extreme domain expertise of your data, knowing exactly what it looks like, how to clean it, et cetera. And there's the other side of, after the modeling, the deployment, monitoring, and stuff like that. I don't still don't know which one is going to be more important, but certainly something for all of us to think about. And we already covered the overhype. So let's see. Any thoughts on how we get to AGI or if we should or can? Definitely should. No. <laughs> this I read discussions about AGI and I also take part in when someone comes on the street talk or so and we talk about AGI. And it's fun to talk about and so on. And it's I see that you might want to prepare in the sense of what can we do now such that it doesn't destroy us and so on? But then again, I, I read discussions where people write text and text about AGI, what's ethical, whatnot. And I'm just like, who wants to spend that much effort thinking about this kind of stuff? Yeah, so I'm a bit hypocritical there in that I engage as well in this kind of discussions when they happen. I, I would say just take it with light I take it usually a bit lightheartedly talking about AGI. It's a fun thought experiment. I don't think we're we are anywhere close anywhere close to AGI. What I think we are close maybe is some something like GPT-3 but that works even better. I I think that's going to change things dramatically once I don't know GPT-4 is built or something like this. And that may, some people will maybe call this a form of AGI. I don't think so. Whether or not we should, I don't know. I, you know, what's more worrisome to me is what people do with technology than kind of the technology itself. So I'm much more worried that people use technology for, you know, kind of bad purposes. Rather, I don't see this, the dangers much in the technology itself. So if we build AGI, my first worry would be that it's probably going to be controlled by some big corporation. And that would be, so my worries would be something like, I'm not really comfortable in them having exclusive access to it rather than, oh, wow, it's going to 
take over the world or something like this. Yeah. Uh, as for how do we get there practically? I don't know. I have no idea. I think we're on a good track. Have you ever looked into machine learning use cases in bioinformatics? If so, what are the big opportunities? No, not a clue. I've looked at this paper where they run, they look at what BERT does in kind of genetics, but I'm very bio naive. I don't know much about that stuff. What research areas in machine learning do you think are overlooked or underfunded? Mine, of course. No. <laughs> right now, I have no idea, honestly. I don't know. what. If I knew, I would just do whatever that and throw money in myself <laughs> or, some, true. or something, true. something like this. There are certainly, like, there's lots of opinions of things that are overlooked. And there's definitely, let's say, a misalignment, like the, the popular stuff gets a lot of money and a lot of attention, whatever DeepMind does and so on. But I'm not the, I don't know. I don't think I'm smarter than the market for sure. Maybe the market is off, but I'm probably more off. <laughs> Very humble. What applications of machine learning are you most excited about? Yeah, I don't, it's a good question. I think what we're still waiting for is maybe more of an interaction of machine learning with the real world. So we have lots of machine learning in say the digital world and so on, but maybe once machine learning can get a good handle on something like robotics, that'd be pretty cool. I don't think it's quite there yet, but also I enjoy the applications in the digital world. I enjoy better recommender systems. I enjoy more efficient planning of heat systems and i enjoy you know any kind of thing that makes people's life easier or better and so on what i often wonder is maybe the the antithesis to this so if you were like a mad scientist and just wanted to see the world burn or something and but you were only allowed to do it with machine learning not yes you could build a killer drone but then how far is that going to get but if you were to like have to use a a thing that is to a large part machine learning or, or general AI, how would you go about being a math scientist? I don't know. It's very hard. Would you, would you build, would you put like alpha zero on finding the next disease or would you be more like in the propaganda section? Would you try to like cause some kind of big ideological split? That is a, it's a fun, it's a fun question, I think. <laughs> Yeah, you can definitely think of a lot of a lot of ways that could go wrong, although only using machine learning is an interesting constraint for sure. <laughs> and the last of these questions from colleagues is, what's the biggest mistake that you see people who are just starting out make in machine learning? Could be research or application. Trusting results in papers. We have here in, in our lab especially when we, we started out, learned this kind of, let's say, the hard way, in that you have, and maybe you can go by institution a bit in that if it's a big paper, let's say, from Google, and they have their code out and so on, maybe it's a bit more trustworthy, but we've had so many papers where 
you have your little domain and you have these few other people that research in that domain and you just can't reproduce their results. And I'm not, and it's not like they're lying off. Like very often it's not malicious. It's simply that methods are brittle. You, they, they maybe code between the time where they submitted the paper and the time where they uploaded the code, they've messed around with it a bit. So it's not really clear what parameters they used and so on. So, so I would say don't, maybe don't sweat getting the exact numbers that someone else has un, unless you can just run their code. That's easy. But if you don't have the code, reproducing a machine learning paper just from the paper is almost never worth it. Yeah, that's something that I've learned the hard way as well. But like we said before, it's some of that is due to seed hunting, where you just run it 100 times with different seed and report only the best result. Um, that's malicious. But but uh, yeah, sometimes, like you said, the hyperparameters especially are just often not in the paper uh, with these smaller ones. Google, Facebook, they, those do a great job of having really long appendices and having their code out where you can pretty easily run it, especially now Google has Colab. You can just click a button and it'll reproduce given enough money. But yeah, it's definitely a hard one lesson. And hopefully people will not put so much emphasis on trying to get like within that 1% of tippy top performance in that. And so this has been a really great conversation, but, and we're going to start to wrap up this now. Was there anything that you think I should have asked, but didn't something that topic you're interested in? Not really. I'm pretty happy to, to talk about any anything this i don't know i i feel you i don't know probably since it's your podcast but i would have also liked to hear more a bit from your side and what you think about things i i know nothing of your world i know nothing of ml engineering right this is like the real world like you deal with actual problems and and like what do you do all day like how does your day look and sure it it depends on what phase our team is in. I'm at Workday. We do financial, like uh, human capital management and financial software. And so our team is specifically working on AI for document understanding. So business documents like invoices, receipts, credit memos, things like those. And often it's just images, scanned images or PDFs. So we take uh, the things that are in those documents and link them into the specific instances of things in inside of the software. So if it's a supplier or so if it's like an invoice from Amazon per se, it'll, once you upload that document, it, our, our software will automatically say, oh, we saw that you had this credit memo from Amazon before, and you also had this supplier purchase order, and it'll link all the line items and aggregate them. So that's what I do. But we... My day depends on whether we're in more of an engineering phase or in a research phase. So we just wrapped up a pretty large project. And that, so like the past probably two months was just pure engineering of we have this deep learning model. What are all the things we have to do to actually make this useful? Okay, we have the accuracy. All right, what's the inference going to look like? Are we going to do it in batches? Are we going to do it in real time? How much compute do we need? What's the best way to monitor this? How are we going to know if the data drifts? So it's all just the, like you said, the real world stuff of trying to make sure that 
the results that we saw in our research are actually representative of the real world and that we can make those things connect. Yeah, does would would you agree with like how how many so you you say you have regular research phases which is is already like a very cool feature of a job. I I feel I don't want to discredit the engineering but it, I feel the mix makes it important. What would you say is the percentage of your mix? Like how much do you do let's say ML research and how much do you do engineering of stuff in like over the year? I think it's probably maybe definitely less than 50% research. Although often a large part of the, it depends on how you define the research phase, because actually a lot of it is pre-research where you have a, like the product team has this idea for a, pro, a feature and they say, okay, this is probably an ML thing. And they'll come to us and say, okay, like what's the research required to do this? Let's, there's a lot of iteration on the exact metric that you're trying to optimize. So it's, I don't know top five versus top one versus are you doing precision or recall, stuff like that. And of course, they don't really know all the stats. So it's very much in terms of back and forth. So I don't know if you define that as research or as something else, but defining the problem is actually a fairly big part of it. And then, but probably I'd say that plus the actual research of iterating, maybe 30 to 40%. And the rest is fighting fires of previous models that have gone wrong or actually putting new models into production and things like that. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I'm extremely lucky to have this job, I think. The, the thing that I always say is that the gap between the research, like GPT-3 and all of these other amazing models, the gap between that and the machine learning products that people actually use on a daily basis that aren't just like social networks is just gigantic right now. Yes. It's never been bigger. Yeah. And so I think that's it's a really great time to be a machine learning engineer. And I think that gap is going to persist for at least a few more years. Mm -hmm. As long as the... It, it depends on how fast you think the research is going to accelerate, but at uh, this pace, I think it's uh, it's going to stay for a while. So it's really exciting. Do you have any... Do you see any... Because I'm, I'm very excited about GPT-3 in the way that I, I think it can actually be used for products because we have this API where it's accessible. Do you, do you have even consider this in your area, in your company? Like we could use GPT-3 for something or how do you go about that? Yeah, um, I can't go into too much detail, but we, when we can, we would rather use external APIs mm -hmm. rather than maintain things in-house. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, we've definitely looked into it. Okay. <laughs> uh, <can't>, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, we haven't found a use case for the GPT-3 API specifically, but it's definitely, definitely on the table. I'm curious what you think the, it's not, you generally, I think the biggest thing with that is you generally don't need something that good. Most of the use of GPT-3 is, at least the really impressive part is language generation. And I guess it just doesn't really come up that much in business use cases. That That's very possible. I felt good kind of applications are, for example, like email writing, like where and people are doing this, where you just write a bunch of like short bullet points and then it expands it into a nice sounding email. Like this is awesome. You get like some sort of request, you just type no. 
and you, you, you like click the GPT-3 button and goes, oh, I'm very sorry. This doesn't really fit for me. This, I see definitely potential for this and maybe also weirder. weirder. It's not something for everything. I don't think it's a solution to all the things, but de definitely cool that that it's available and... Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm still waiting to get API access personally, uh, because I have a lot. Me and my friends, we come up with these like crazy business ideas of let's just like think of 50 things that we can do with GP3. So there's some there's some pretty wild ones that we've uh, that we've proposed. But um, just to give an example of one of the weirder ones, it's okay for some reason on the Kindle App Store, all of the top selling books are like romance novels, and they're very formulaic. So let's just use GPT-3 to spam tons of these Kindle books in the romance category and see how much money we can make just of that, if they're like even good or not. But yeah, I think there's going to be some really interesting things that come. And I don't know if you've heard of Contentize. It's this. So he was like, the founder was a math PhD, got really into machine learning, didn't thought about doing an academic track, but decided to do something more interesting. And what he did was he made a news website that was completely AI generated and it used a script to send out like 3000 emails to founders of like startups. And it would just ask them like the same questions and have a back and forth with GPT-3 to, to get more out of, to more, get more information. And then he would take the answers that they gave and use GPT-3 to write articles from all of those founders. So I think in a span of two months or something, he made he wrote a thousand articles from all these different startup founders Crazy. automatically. Crazy. That's yeah, I, I'm wondering what I should think because people often talk of GPT three and then they be like, but fake news. And especially the GPT two, they had this launch where they say we're not going to release the model because it's too dangerous. And, uh, and people say, yeah, but it can produce fake news. And I'm, I'm so wondering, is really the ability to have a machine produce fake news? What's worse? Is a thousand fake news articles going to convince me more than if I want fake news, I just write them. I, I don't think that the problem in the fake news is the, the volume. I think the problem with the fake news is that it's fake, is that it's made up and it, 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 it has like some sort of lie in it. And I can do that just as well as GPT-3. Like, okay, maybe not just as well, but I can do it. I can even, I can, it doesn't depend on the volume. I'm not sure what I should, what I should think there. It's, it, it's always coming up. People always go, but fake news. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's also the problem of uh, deep fakes as well, where it's like, you could have someone just, I don't know, like Obama or Trump just like saying anything. Not that. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that's just an adjustment we have to make because, like, now if you get like a letter from, or if you get an email from a Nigerian prince that for sure uh, you have inherited from his father wealth and you just need to send this, like, you, you don't believe it. It's, I think we just need to make this kind of adjustment in our head. Whereas right now we say, oh, the people that fall for the Nigerian prince scam. Maybe in, in 20 years, we'll say, oh, the people who fall for the, my niece is calling me on FaceTime scam. Like you'll, you'll have like FaceTime with your niece and it'll be like, I need money. And then you send the money with, it's a face, it's a video. It's a proper video of your niece. And, and then you'll be like, oh, that was just a scammer using deepfake. Yeah. Yeah. 
But then, of course, you have the other side. There's like the of being able to generate videos like that and save a lot of time. There's another startup. Can't think of the name. It started with an R, is like Replica or something. But they do corporate communications with generative machine learning, where it's you're announcing a new product. Let's say all you do is like the email. It uses I don't know GPT three, maybe something else. You just write a few bullet points about the product. It'll generate the press release for you mm -hmm. in like your corporate tone. It will have a generate the audio for it of a spoke, fake spokesperson, and it will have a corporate PR video generated for that product as well, like with like stock images and videos and other stuff like that. Who knows? It's it's very interesting. Well, yeah, that's. I think that's the whole point is that any technology can be used always for good purposes, for bad purposes, and so on. And maybe we should worry a bit that as technology becomes more powerful, of course the applications, negative applications are going to become more impactful, but so are the positive. And so is going to be our ability to mitigate is also going to become more, more powerful. Yeah. I don't know what to think of people who are too worried about the developments. I believe it's always, it always is a question of the person who actually decides to take a system and do something with it as rather than the technology itself. Yeah, it's just like when, if you read about, if you read news clippings of when cars were first released, the people would say, oh, this is going to be so terrible. All the carriage people are going to lose their jobs and it's going to be, the city's going to be super loud all the time and people are going to... And they were right. <laughs> yeah, and people are going to drive drunk. The horse can just take you home. <laughs> Well, they, so. <laughs> they turn out correct. Uh, no. <laughs> but of course, like they only focused on the bad things and they didn't focus on, oh, you can go like anywhere you want really easily. But yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> All right. The, to close off, I have a few rapid fire questions. So they're just quick questions. Your answers don't have to be that quick. And the first of which is, what do you do for fun outside of work? I'm a street musician. Really? Yeah. What instrument? I have a guitar and a looper and uh, yeah. Wow. Very cool. Maybe you can, maybe you can have a separate YouTube channel showing off some of your skills for that. Next is what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? Could be technical or non-technical. For some reason, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I don't know why. I, I have the audiobook. Maybe I just like the speaker, but it's a good book. And then a Gulag Archipelago, but that kind of mm. makes me depressed. So I don't know if I would <laughs> recommend it, but it's a good book. Yeah, I can wholeheartedly recommend both of those. I definitely agree that it's, uh, you have to take breaks when reading Gulag Archipelago <laughs> or else you get yeah, a little too down. <laughs> Next, is there an important truth that very few people agree with you on? From zero to you one. took that. I was gonna say you, <laughs> you took that from zero to one. No, I don't. I have not formed my contrarian my contrarian opinion. Ed. I think most of my contrarian views are mainstream enough. Like that peer review is not real good, and yeah, no good answer to that yet. No problem. What have you recently changed your mind on? Could be an ML or not an ML. I'm sort of on the brink of changing my mind about GPT-3 because I've been long saying like, ah, it's impressive, but it's a kind of a, a recall system. It's a good, 
It's a good, it gets stuff it has seen and mashes it together, but it doesn't do any, what people might call reasoning. And of course, there is the question of do humans even do that? Blah, 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 blah. Do you do symbolic manipulation in your head or not? Uh, it's just an illusion. But I have long said that GPT-3 probably doesn't do something like reasoning. And there have been a number of, of demonstrations of GPT-3 where I'm not so sure anymore that it's not a lot closer to what humans do than I thought. Namely, yeah, things in the kind of mathy space or there's this super interesting demonstration of a database where you just tell like GPT-3 like, the database knows nothing. When you add oh, to the I database, yeah. then it knows that what you added. And, and then you, this is like, what? But uh, I feel like I have to investigate myself a bit. But that's, yeah, something I'm changing my mind on. Interesting. Yeah, I saw the in my podcast player that you had there. That was part of the title of the one that came out yesterday. Mm -hmm. So I'll definitely have to give that a listen. And lastly, what advice would you give to someone just entering the field? Apart from don't sweat reproducing papers, it's maybe, maybe you know, try to find your niche. Okay, maybe I'm speaking to like PhD students here, but I, I feel I've stressed out a lot by meandering around, as we've said, uh, into a lot of, and you can definitely do some exploration, but trying to find a niche and where you just feel comfortable, it, that's interesting to you but that is narrow enough such that you can uh, play the game uh, because you, you're not going to compete with Google. You're not. And so the, the, the secret is not to try to, but to find some side niche where it, you, you, you can be good at. And don't, don't go for the hypes too much. As I said, when I started out, everything was GAN. And I did some research in GANs and I've transitioned away from it but let's say i've i had made that my topic like oh, i'm into gans now i'm trying to finish a phd and maybe i still need a paper like i don't in my case but i could be that i haven't published enough that i already need a paper and so do thousands of other phd students who jumped on the gan hype three years ago they also they're all in gans and they need another paper but the topic is just not hot anymore. So the kind of, let's say the amount of space that a conference has available for these papers shrinks by sheer nature of this not being as interesting anymore. And that's, so if you try to not jump that much on kind of the hype train of the day. Fascinating. Yeah. And again, going back to zero to one, it's uh, you have to find your personal monopoly where you can uh, just be the one and only. Definitely. Yes. And if for any listeners to, we're going to wrap this up, your, again, your YouTube channel for anyone who isn't for some reason already subscribed, definitely needs to go subscribe to that. And the podcast is fairly new, but is exceptional as well. They're super in-depth, long conversations with, and like I said, so dense. You really do need to, <laughs> there's just so much information in these. Sometimes we're just talking a lot of crap, but... I always say it's the place to have strong opinions with very little foundation for them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, the street talk part of that, that's, uh, that's where we get some of the, the more fun conversations as well. 
<laughs> so this has been a really fun conversation, Yannick, and I'm so glad that we were able to make this happen. So thank you for coming onto the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, this was fun. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.